0: Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Downing. I'm a practicing veterinarian who is also a formally trained clinical bioethicist.
1: What? So that's the part I knew you were a veterinarian. I've know you've been working on the bioethics stuff. Would you explain when somebody asks you bioethics, what's that? What is your elevator pitch about bioethics?
0: So clinical bioethics is that discipline that helps to guide ethical decision making at the bedside in healthcare world, in our case, in veterinary medicine, ethical decision-making at the table side or on the floor next to our patient, where we as practitioners in partnership with our clients who are the pet owners, we get to ask the question, just because we can do something to or for an animal, does that mean we should do that something?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can you is there an example you give primarily? So if people are thinking that's because I was going to ask, obviously, every medical practitioner is involved in bioethics in some way with the decisions they make, but they probably don't think about it as 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 um, obviously or, or explicitly. Could you give an explicit example of when bioethics absolutely comes into play in that exam room with the client, the veterinarian and the patient?
0: I certainly can, and let me actually take an example from human medicine because I think this Perfect. is uh, this is a little probably a little more relatable to anyone who's listening. Okay. So, in in the human medical world, uh, one of the places where clinical bioethics becomes so critically important is at the is at the end of life or as death is approaching. And so I'll use uh, palliative care and hospice as an example. Um, we I'm a patient and I have multiple medical crises that are happening all at once, but at the same time I am closer to death than to birth. Okay. And I'm actually in a place where I am faced now with the possibility of a very serious intervention, uh, a major surgery, like a, a a heart surgery, or taking out part of my liver or thinking about brain surgery. But at the same time, the context is that I am in a place where my body is shutting down and I'm approaching my death. The physicians involved may be rather myopic. I know that you have this problem and I can fix it with a surgery. Yes. And it's a very narrow focus. And that's where asking for an ethics consult becomes so critically important because the clinical bioethicist is there to help facilitate this decision-making through a framework that involves multiple principles that help guide that decision-making. So one being what we call respect for autonomy, which is allowing that patient, in this case, I'm the patient, allowing me to make an independent decision that I have reached without coercion so in other words, I'm not being I'm not being pressured into having that surgery by the surgeon. I get to make that decision on my own. Another principle being non-maleficence, which translates to do no harm. So I'm I'm going to have that bioethicist help me weigh the balance between benefits and burdens to whatever is being recommended for me. The third principle, when we look from a principalist perspective, is the principle of beneficence, which is actively doing good on behalf of the patient. So in this case, having advocacy on my behalf uh, as we measure these burdens to benefits to decide should I have an intervention or not. And then finally, the principle of justice weighs in, and justice uh, can be interpreted as fairness so that I can be confident that what's being recommended to me is what would be recommended to any patient in my situation. So um, as a contrast uh, would be the um, idea that uh, I'm going to uh, look at if I'm, if I'm uh, making an unjust recommendation, I might present different information to my patient and family. uh, If I'm a physician and I can see that they're, uh, financial situation is such that they might not be able to pay for that procedure and to withhold information from that family based on that judgment versus I'm going to present the same information to each family to each patient who finds him or herself in this similar situation so take, taking yeah. that and now translating into veterinary medicine what are we talking about so this is where we would be talking about Um, and I'll use end-of-life or approaching end-of-life as my example, uh, because it's an easy, easy example for every pet owner to think about. I have a 13-year-old cat who is experiencing chronic kidney disease and has some evidence of heart disease as well, and now I find a mass in the abdomen. And typically, if a veterinarian finds a mass in the abdomen of a cat, My response to the veterinarian is to say, let's go to surgery and take that mass out. Yeah. Well, I might have a 13-year-old cat in my practice who doesn't have kidney disease and doesn't have heart disease and has a mass in its abdomen, and they're a great candidate for surgery. Okay. And that's the direction that I would need to go. But if I've got a cat who's in that situation with multiple comorbidities, then that's where it's time for us to leverage a bioethical conversation because we know medically, a mass in the abdomen solution, surgery. But from a bioethical perspective, we have to answer the question, how am I going to filter the decision about to go or not to go to surgery through the lens of those four principles? For instance, after surgery, this is a cat who's going to have to have care, which means they're going to have to take pain medication. There might be some other nutritional things we'll have to do. We have to ask the question, is this a cat who's going to be able to and willing to participate in their own care postoperatively? Uh, from a non-maleficence perspective, do no harm. I know that surgery is a big deal and has the potential to actually cause death. This cat could die on the table. So am I causing a bigger burden or a bigger harm by going to surgery than I would be by shifting to palliative care or hospice care as we now are using that verbiage with animal patients? From a beneficence perspective, looking out for the patient's best interest, there are things there are 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 going to factor into that. How well is that cat's kidney disease managed? Is this a cat who has good... Compensation? Is this a cat who has potentially uh, a good amount of kidney function left if we would make such a serious intervention as an abdominal surgery? What about the heart disease? Is this a patient who's really capable of handling an anesthetic event and living through the experience? So is it in the patient's best interest for us to proceed? And then, from a fairness perspective or justice, we do have to ask the question how is how am I presenting this material of this information to my client who is speaking for my patient? Am I, am I speaking the same language? Am I using the same verbiage for this client that I would use for any client who finds themselves in a situation where their beloved cat has several diseases present and now we're faced with a catastrophic issue that would demand a major intervention by a surgery? And those, these are just guideposts That we in veterinary medicine, we've not had these formal guideposts presented to us uh, in this kind of a way. And that's one of the reasons why, quite frankly, uh, I was really driven and called to pursue this discipline we call clinical bioethics.
1: So that that you presented so well, those four principles and then how those four principles relate to that situation in veterinary medicine. And all I could think all the way through, I have an app on my phone that reminds me, I think every three or four hours that I'm going to die. So it has quotes in it that's and there is a strong strand in many religions and many um, philosophies that one key to a better lived happier life is paradoxically that you need to be prepared for death but very seldom now when we don't live on the farm and we don't take care of our relatives dying in the home very seldom do we encounter death in our normal day-to-day life so this strikes me this complicated matrix of things you're talking about you have to do this oftentimes with either clients or or human patients Who are not prepared to have this conversation at all because they don't like thinking about this and they they don't think about it. They don't like thinking about it. And now it's their death they're having to face. This is a that is a rough situation. How do how do those principles, which sound so good and that sound like you could get to a really good decision, but then you mix in that mix of difficult emotions that people are having. How does that play out?
0: So that's a really insightful question, because, of course, there's always an emotional component And um, again, what's interesting on the human side of things is that um, the discipline of clinical bioethics emerged because physicians as a whole, as a profession, really, unfortunately, created a situation and a scenario within which they were unwilling, incapable of or just unable to go there and have those kinds of conversations with their patients and the families. And it, there is a, there's actually a very seminal work in the bioethical literature called Strangers at the Bedside. Uh, The author's last name is Rothman. And in it, he really articulates this, this, this meandering pathway that led from the idea that the physician knows all, tells all, the physician is in charge of telling you what you should do. It's a very very paternalistic kind of perspective. And even within that, the, the thinking was that when serious decisions needed to be made and end of life was approaching, that it was really the physician who was in the best position to say enough is enough. And what really emerged Was this um, pushback from patients and their families that maybe the physician doesn't always know what's best, and uh, people would be just blindsided by the fact of an impending death, uh, the fact of a life-changing illness, where we're in within within which the that within that relationship that the patient has with the physician within that relationship where there was no preparation, there really was no discussion. And so here's a patient who's being invited to make some really serious decisions about what will happen to them. And we've got a physician community as a whole who finds themselves in conflict with either what patients want or what patients don't want. Um, So there there is a very, very important principle in clinical bioethics on the the human side of things, um, wherein we as patients have the absolute right to decline medical intervention so we can decline life-sustaining therapy. This becomes important at the moment, at this moment in which we find ourselves in the face of this pandemic knowing that many people who become ill with COVID-19, ill enough to be in the hospital, will often have their symptoms proceed to a point where they need to be intubated and put on a ventilator in order to sustain their lives. And potentially, I mean, the idea is they'll be sustained until they recover to a point where the ventilator can be withdrawn. Well, The decision to either withhold or withdraw life-sustaining therapy was a decision that was really strictly in the purview of the medical community, the physician community. This is a very, very, as you can imagine, emotionally charged set of decisions. And unfortunately, people, meaning the average patient, we people don't, as you said, like to think about death. So we typically as a population, fail badly, fail miserably to create uh, any kind of documentation of what do we want if the worst happens, if bad things happen and I can't make a medical decision on my own behalf, what do I want? Do I want to be on a ventilator? Do I want to have open heart surgery? If I have a stroke and there appears to be no cognitive function left in my brain, do I want to have tube feeding? and hydration, artificial hydration and feeding, artificial in the sense that I'm not initiating it myself. Right. On the other hand, if I have a reasonable opportunity based on the medical statistics of recovering, am I willing to have that intervention? Or am I, do I want somebody to just say, oh, I'm not sure you'll make it so we won't even initiate that care? Those are the kinds of decisions that we as individuals really should be making for ourselves. Before the worst happens. However, we don't do that. Right. So now. So now
1: and we if we, the- so another one thing about that, even if we did, oftentimes people make a decision about that five, six, seven, maybe 10 years ago, they write it up, they talk it over with people and put it away. When they're confronted with this 10 years later, I, I mean, there is that thing that's been written 10 years ago, but people change also. Our, our decisions about a, um, a fantasy future where these terrible things happen to me is different than when you're in it too. I mean, that's a hard that's a, it's better to have what the person decided on the sheet, but it's also tough because people change too.
0: Well, what's interesting is that it typically isn't the person who changes their minds. It's often the family that will try to override those orders, oh. and those decisions. And that's where it gets really sticky. Well, back to this whole, yes, the physician is in charge of, of facilitating these decisions. And often then there's conflict. We might have the family who says, um, the the patient has uh, suffered a catastrophic uh, injury or illness. There is like little to no potential for this individual to recover. Um, It's time for us to initiate um, palliative care where we focus on comfort and allow nature to take its course essentially. Then we we may have then family members who are demanding Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. I want you to do everything to keep my mother alive or to keep my grandpa alive. And herein then can emerge a conflict where the physician understands that, no, we really aren't going to get the outcome you desire. So we need to stop now. Enough is enough. And the family is in complete opposition to that. That's a situation where a clinical bioethicist would be called in to help facilitate the decision-making, hence the term stranger at the bedside. That bioethicist isn't the primary care physician. That bioethicist isn't a family member. That bioethicist is probably the best way to describe it as a disinterested third party, not uninterested. That's a very important distinction, but disinterested, meaning I do not have a vested interest in either way this decision Goes. And that's really at the heart of um, being an effective clinical bioethicist.
1: Well, now you're push, you're pu- I now I really love twice you've pushed back on this idea that the problem is with the patient, what the patient wants. If I'm reading correctly, it sounds like maybe the, the things you've thought about through your career with clients and patients and the things you've read and experienced in the human medical world. It sounds like if you give a, a client or a patient the right information at the, at the right time, even though it's a tough decision, they oftentimes make, quote unquote, what that person would consider the right decision. They know what they want. If they're given enough information, they eventually know what they want. Is, does that sound true? So it's so interesting
0: that you have expressed that particular insight because I know practicing bioethicists who tell me that, in large part, many of the situations wherein there is a, say, a derailed set of decisions on behalf of a patient, that in many situations, not every, but many, that it really is a failure of communication. And that if you really articulated it so well, Part of our obligation as medical providers, and this is actually falls under the umbrella of that very first principle I referred to of respect for autonomy. Mm -hmm. If I respect the autonomy or the ability of my client to make an independent decision without coercion, part of my obligation to make that happen is to present enough information about what's happening at a level that my client can understand in order for them to be empowered to make what you have referred to and what I refer to in my practice as the best decision for them under the circumstances. Okay. And that's, that's really at the heart of, uh, of, a, uh, of any bioethical um, interaction and here is where, in our profession, in the veterinary profession, we do this in large measure without thinking about it. Uh, we we know that our patients are going to die. We know that we take care of our patients. We're the only medical profession on the planet that does this. We take care of our patients from womb to tomb, from cradle to grave. So we see the entire arc of life. And so, consciously or unconsciously we actually do facilitate these kinds of decisions. Where I really see a formal approach through the lens of clinical bioethics, making a difference in veterinary medicine, is in the situation we find ourselves now where our access to technology has exploded. I've been in practice 34 years, and I never dreamed 34 years ago about the kinds of things that are considered everyday occurrences in veterinary medicine at this moment. For instance, there was a dog right here at Colorado State University who underwent a heart valve replacement using TAVR technology, that's the entry into the the vasculature of the arm, instead of cracking open the chest to replace a heart valve. This is crazy, it's crazy to think that we would be able to do this in veterinary medicine in animal patients and yet we have that as an option. Something else that 34 years ago as I came out of school I never would have dreamed we would even be having a conversation about is uh, the transplantation of healthy kidneys into cats who are at the end stage of kidney disease and yet, There are two programs that I'm aware of where this is something that this is done. It's a thing to actually take a healthy kidney from a healthy cat and transplant it into a cat whose kidneys have ceased to, to function. Well, okay, it's great that we can do that, but how do we make the decision that this is the right patient, this is the right procedure, and this is the right time for this to happen? That's where our profession, the veterinary profession, really has not enjoyed the formality of a framework within which to start to ask the hard question, just because we can transplant that kidney into a cat with dead kidneys, does that mean we should? Just because we can replace a heart valve through the front leg of the dog, does that mean we should? Just because we can Uh, take out the spleen of a dog who is dealing with other diseases. Does that mean we should? These are the kinds of questions that we are faced with as veterinarians on a regular basis. But now that our technology has changed, now that our technology has advanced so that we have access to things we never dreamed we'd have access to 15 years ago, now all of a sudden the decision to proceed is a far more complex decision and here is where a language a framework a vocabulary of dialogue with a client that is structured along these lines of weighing benefits to burdens of understanding what's the patient's role in all of this of of understanding where's the where's the where's the fairness in this Is this affordable? Is this uh, a kind of a a strategy whereby the family is now going to have to make a decision between feeding their children and proceeding with a procedure for their pet? These are difficult and murky waters, and here's where a bioethical framework can really make a difference.
1: Do those questions, I really wanted to talk a little bit about that money issue, Because I I know that that enters into things heavily in human medicine where things are inequitable because certain people, because of the resources, have better access to care and they have, uh, so that happens. And we know that happens in the veterinary world too, because if you can afford all the best care at your veterinarian, then your pet could very well lead a happier, healthier life. How often is money, how much money the patient has, how much money the client has, how does that wade into it a lot some veterinarians say that's not my concern at all I cannot I would I can't live my life if I'm concerned about whether this person can afford the medical care that I feel should be offered how do you wade into that
0: so first of all I think it's a complete abdication of responsibility for anybody <laughs> to say don't put
1: don't put too soft a point on it now Robin
0: <laughs> complete abdication of any re, of our responsibility for us to say I have to proceed where I can't pay attention to what the client can and cannot afford. Okay, to take that approach is abdication. Now, there's a more nuanced approach, which is we have an obligation to the patient and to the client to present what is, in our medical opinion based on medical fact uh, and the patient's context, what is the best next step. Okay, And then it becomes client's opportunity to then allow us to know what they can and cannot afford. So I can't just say we need to do X, and that's the end of the conversation. I have a responsibility and an obligation both to my patient and my client to engage in a dialogue to better understand what can the client afford. What can they afford? What can they do? What can't they do? That's part of my obligation as a veterinarian. That said, we do, one of the situations we run into in veterinary medicine that isn't so common, I don't think, in human medicine from okay. a from a money standpoint, is that, and I, I hear this from my colleagues who teach in a tertiary care facility, like a veterinary school, where they will actually hear things like the development director of the university comes to me as a an anesthesiologist and tells me that I'm going to be taking care of a dog who belongs to a major donor to this facility so I should take better care of that dog than I would take care of anybody else's dog yeah that is a clear bioethical violation i mean that's just like unconscionable but it happens we also have the situation in a tertiary care facility, and I again, this comes from feedback I've had from colleagues at, in a veterinary school scenario where you have a client who has literally unlimited monetary resources, and their attitude is I want you to do everything for my cat or my okay. dog, and the sky's the limit. I don't care what it costs. I want you to do all of those things. Now we're in that situation where the family, in the human setting, is saying to the physician, "Yes, I want you to do everything to keep Grandma alive, no matter what you think the outcome is going to be." So, so there's where uh, there's a, a, a situation on the veterinary side. The client who has unlimited resources says, "I want you to do everything for my cat. I want you to do everything for my dog." But it's not in that dog's best interest. There's where we really do and can and should bring into the conversation these core principles of clinical bioethics to help structure a dialogue with that client. Now, I want to look a little bit at the flip side of that. Okay. So, So I have a client.
1: Yeah, the more common situation is not that the person comes in and says, I have unlimited funds. I can exactly. do everything.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now I'm faced with a situation where, I, I mean, I, I, have a, uh, I have a dog, and they, I, in an I, ideal world, uh, they would get treatment X. And I disclose, because I have an obligation to disclose to the client what that financial impact will be. And this is where dialogue becomes important. And this is where our communication skills, which are learned skills, we have an obligation to learn those skills, to enter into a dialogue with that client so that I can better understand is this achievable by them? Because if it isn't, then I need to be prepared to modify my recommendation to fit the need of the family. Um, And it may be fit the need of the patient. I may have a patient who would be a terrible candidate for uh, having a major orthopedic procedure because they have uh, major orthopedic issues in other joints. Mm -hmm. Um, I may have a dog who has a ruptured intervertebral disc at one level, but it turns out that they have several discs at several levels that have ruptured well okay now is it really in the best interest of that patient and that family to invest money and to invest the invasion of uh, doing a major spine surgery on multiple levels in that patient when what we would be better uh advised to do is to modify our plan so it it's only when we engage in dialogue that we can understand is what we have recommended from a medical standpoint, is this in fact achievable by the family? And if it is not, then we have an obligation not to tell those people, well, you must be a horrible human being because you don't love your dog enough right. to go into debt to have something done, but rather to say, okay, what, let's back up. And ask ourselves, again, in dialogue, what can we do? And I want to make one more sort of point along that same line. I don't know if you're aware that Dr. Michael Blackwell, who is um, a veterinarian who was the assistant to the United States Surgeon General, for a period of time and was the dean of the veterinary college at university of tennessee for a period of time has actually launched an initiative where what his foundation and organization is attempting to do is to create a nationwide network of bringing veterinary care primary veterinary care Affordable primary veterinary care into underserved locations, underserved, mostly many of these in their initial foray are urban um, urban centers where we have underserved populations of people who are reaping the benefits, the health benefits of having animals in their lives, but they are faced with financial restrictions that inhibit their ability to provide good preventive primary care to those animals. And what then happens is that those animals end up suffering from catastrophic issues that in many cases could be prevented with good preventive care. But the the sort of self-perpetuating cycle is, well, if I can't I can't afford preventive care, and yes. when I can't, perform, I can't afford preventive care, it doesn't happen. And then my animal has these issues that emerge, but then I can't afford to take them in when things are at an early stage of intervention where something could be done and reversed, and then it, it builds and cascades, and, and suddenly now I'm faced with the fact that I have to lose my pet because I didn't have the resources to take care of things before they even became a problem. And I really applaud uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Blackwell, for taking this very, very difficult uh, bull by the horns to create opportunities through networking with uh, practitioners and providing um, uh, opportunities for for underserved veterinary clients to have access to care that they can in fact afford that will allow them to preserve that very, very sacred human-animal bond in a way that allows them to reap the, the health benefits, both physical and mental health benefits that we know happens by partnering with animals in our lives and allowing those animals the respect, the moral agency to receive the preventive care to keep them healthy that we all know in the veterinary world they need and deserve.
1: So I would say that is the perfect counterbalance. It sounds like the healthy, proactive, laudable counterbalance to a psychological play that I think many veterinary professionals Can fall into. So they love animals. They know how wonderful animals are. They decide to devote themselves to healing animals. They go out into private practice where everyone, the only way medical care happens is if someone comes in and pays for it. And eventually, I think a few years down the line, they find themselves commenting on social media angrily. You know what? If you can't afford the pet, you shouldn't have gotten it. And, it, and it's sort of this kind of a defense. It's hard to maintain the pets are good for everyone, but then be confronted day after day with situations where people cannot afford care for them. And they do fall into a bit of that trap. And this sounds like far better. Let's get an organization together. Let's help these people. We know people are better with pets in their lives. Let's find a way to make that happen. I think individual veterinary professionals and individual practices feel overwhelmed by that situation.
0: I would agree with that, and I I will be the first to disclose that I'm very, very fortunate to live in a community where uh, we have rescue organizations that have dedicated a part of their budget to create uh, affordable preventive care for a subset of, of dog and cat owning clients who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford yeah the primary care that those animals receive and 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 I I can't speak for other I can't speak for other communities I can't speak for other parts of the country but I will say that here those rescue organizations have done a real good job of drawing a very bright line to keep themselves in their lane so they they really do focus only on the fundamentals of preventive care and for things that are outside of that that purview, they really do refer to the community veterinarians for, for those things that should be taken care of by the community veterinarians
1: okay and
0: um, and I really feel strongly that um, I you know it's I think that it's easy for veterinarians to sometimes and certainly not in every situation but I think sometimes, It's easy for veterinarians to uh, have a knee-jerk reaction of thinking that they must remain in an adversarial relationship with any organization, be it the local humane society or just a rescue, a grassroots rescue organization that has chosen to provide uh, care for animals that would be otherwise underserved or not served at all, And instead of having that adversarial relationship, I really feel like we as a profession owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our clients, we owe it to the patients that we would otherwise not see to create more of a collaborative relationship with those organizations so that, I mean, we all want the same thing. We we all have the same goal in mind, which is what is best, what, what will serve the pet community the most effectively, What's best for those animals and how can we preserve the relationship that people have with those animals? And that really then circles me back to this issue of uh, clinical bioethics and why I think it's important to create a language, a vocabulary and a framework for the veterinary practicing for the for the for the practice segment. Uh, of veterinary medicine. So I'm not talking about research and I'm not talking about academia. Uh, I'm really talking about the grassroots, boots on the ground veterinarian. To be able to have a kind of a collaborative dialogue, be it with the family of a a pet that needs care, be it with a local organization that is trying to uh, augment what the veterinary community is able to provide by providing care in a low-cost setting, doesn't matter. There needs to be this moral, ethical element to those kinds of conversations in order for those conversations to be just as productive and as equitable to all parties as possible.
1: So, obviously the The idea of ethics in veterinary medicine um, is it's 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 always there. It's always dealt with in some way. But the kind of emphasis that your thinking and your work has, the kind of emphasis you've put into that, what do people in or outside of the veterinary community? What kind of reactions have you had to when you say I'm studying uh, clinical bioethics? Do are people puzzled? Do they say that's what? What, what reactions do you get?
0: What an interesting question. So um, I, I've had responses all the way from what the hell is that uh, <laughs> to um, what does that have to do with me to, oh, my God, please tell me more. Um, it is. It's been he it kind of like all over the all over the map. Um, most many times when I begin to speak about uh, applying the principles and practices of clinical bioethics to clinical veterinary practice, okay. um, oftentimes, and now I'm, I'm speaking about people outside of veterinary medicine. Um, often I, I, I will have someone say to me, um, why well, I, I, I thought you already did that kind of a, you know, I thought that was already a part of what you do. Um, I've even heard that from some people within veterinary medicine. well, we're already doing that, <laughs> right? Well, we 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 are, but we're kind of doing it by the seat of our pants, and that's yeah. the difference between difficult decision making as veterinary medicine has visualized it over the decades, which is really by the seat of our pants. What's my gut tell me, uh, as opposed to the context of clinical bioethics, which is to provide a a rather formal framework for us to make those decisions. Um, I have had, uh, I've in fact just been approached by a foundation to consider participation in this foundation in part as a veterinarian with, as a practicing veterinarian in, in primary care and in really boots on the ground medicine But interestingly enough, also in the capacity of a clinical bioethicist with veterinary experience. So a clinical bioethicist within the veterinary context, because this particular foundation funds research and they want to expand their research reach into the private sector, in other words, into everyday medicine, everyday context versus only funding research in a tertiary care facility like a veterinary school. Right. Well, there's going to have to be attention paid to how patients will be treated during a research project, how clients will be informed during a research project. These are all those are, are, are aspects of veterinary medicine that really are bioethical in nature, and we don't have a we we don't we don't do that. If if there's a research project that's going to happen at a veterinary school, there is an institutional animal care and use committee, the right. IACUC, and they go to that IACUC just like a in a human research setting. They have Uh, IRBs, institutional review boards, that make sure that the uh, protocol is appropriate, that the animals are taken, the IACUC in this case, looks at how the research is done, how the animals are housed, how they're fed, how they're watered, how often will they be handled, what will their environmental enrichment be, will the procedure be invasive or non-invasive, how often are they handled, those kinds of questions are the questions that are examined by an IACUC. Well, in a clinical practice setting the research considerations are quite different because we're talking about animals that are owned by families they have in this case they're hoping to do some research into what we veterinarians would consider run-of-the-mill bread and butter kinds of issues whether it's periodontal disease or ear disease or skin disease doesn't much matter these are everyday occurrences these are not the kinds of conditions that are getting a lot of attention in the tertiary care facilities for research purposes because frankly they don't see those patients right they don't see a patient with chronic ear disease unless that animal has such chronic ear disease that it goes into their middle ear and now we really need to see the specialist they don't typically see periodontal disease before it becomes some massive catastrophe that is going to take the board-certified veterinary dentist at the veterinary school four hours to deal with. They don't see those things, but yet these are the common things about which we don't have maybe all the information we should have and research would be really useful. Well, okay, how are we going to conduct that research ethically? And this is uh, an this is actually an area or a direction that I have to say, I didn't really anticipate that anyone would come to me <laughs> and, right. and, and ask, would you be willing to serve in this capacity? Because I, frankly, I hadn't thought about it. And now that I've had that conversation, I, it seems a pretty natural step for, for me to take and to expand my own knowledge enough that I can, in turn, I mean, let's face it, my long-term strategy is to be able to put into place a mechanism for others to be able to teach other people about this, to be able to teach other practitioners and people entering the veterinary profession about the application of Uh, clinical bioethics to clinical veterinary medicine. Toward that end, I actually am an invited speaker in the um, first year curriculum at Colorado State University in the second semester to teach students a section dedicated to this very idea of using clinical bioethics, introducing them to clinical bioethics, and helping them understand how can we apply this, how should we apply this to what you will ultimately do, you future veterinarians.
1: It, it sounds like you 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 have looked for ways to be helpful with this bioethics. All I mean, something you were curious about, but also how am I going to translate this and how am I going to put this to use? Who has helped you on your journey um, along this path studying bioethics?
0: So a couple of people deserve a a by name. um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, So uh, one is um, um, Dr. James Giordano, who's currently involved with the Center for Clinical Bioethics, the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at the Georgetown University Medical Center. Um, Jim is, uh, was first a pain researcher. And in fact, Uh, it was Jim's research that led to the breakthrough understanding of the role of serotonin pathways in the nervous system as contributors to chronic pain scenarios. And Jim, as a researcher, uh, how he tells his own story is he woke up one day and said, I can no longer do animal research. I can no longer subject animals to these experiments. I need to become a clinical bioethicist and... That yeah. started his path. Well, he and I crossed paths. Uh, now it's been close to 20 years ago, and um, his just his passion about bioethics and his passion about pain medicine really uh, helped propel me toward this uh, this this study that I've undertaken. Couple that with um, a, a good friend of mine who was a, a client of mine, Dr. Patty Mayer, who was in her first life, a rheumatologist, and then became a clinical bioethicist who went on to be board certified in hospice and palliative care. And it was really um, Dr. Mayer's um, influence uh, when she was the medical director overseeing the hospice where my mother died. Uh, I had the privilege of serving as my mother's medical advocate during the final almost two weeks of her life when she was in an in-hospital hospice unit with end-stage ovarian cancer. And it was Dr. Mayer who allowed me to really collaborate with her and with the hospice nurses to help my mother achieve the goal that my mother articulated to me, which was to be comfortable and lucid at the same time. And okay. so we, we, we navigated the minefield of her pain experience as she uh, was on her dying path, and it was in conversation with, Dr. with Patty Mayer uh, during that time that, again, kind of contributed to this spark that has uh, burst into the flame of my pursuit of bioethics. And then finally, the third person that I would say uh, has been uh, just a, a terrific partner In my learning and encouraging me is Dr. Peter Hellyer, who is a pain expert and boarded uh, professor of anesthesia at Colorado State University. And when I first began considering uh, the pursuit, formal pursuit of clinical bioethics, Pete was solidly in my corner and, and really articulated to me and reinforced my impression that my profession really needs this kind of guidance and, and formal framework, he really reinforced that to me. Um, when as, as I've come down this path and as I finished my master's, uh, one other person that I want to mention is yeah. uh, Professor Roseman Rhodes, who is a clinical bioethicist in the Mount Sinai uh, system in New York. And she was an instructor in my master's program, but Rosamond is really an amazing woman in that she has spent most of the last 30 years answering the question, who gets the liver, who gets the kidney. She, yeah. she, her area of expertise is social justice, uh, the um, allocation of scarce resources, and she also is, uh, has just published a, a new book. Identifying that the ethics of medicine is really its own unique discipline, and she is someone who has uh, taken me under her wing and said to me on more than one occasion that what I am doing in my uh, my effort, my attempt to create this dialogue, to create this vocabulary, to create this Framework within veterinary medicine to parallel what's done in human medicine. That this is this is important work to be done. Um, it's easy for me to think it's important because I'm very. I can be I, this, right. I can be just. I can be just as myopic <laughs> as the next guy um, to think that of course the universe revolves right around me. But um, she really, as someone who's done this now for decades and is. Uh, known internationally and, and is, is really a giant in, the, in her field. Um, for her to, to be able to look objectively as an outsider on my profession and to say clearly your profession has changed enough that this is important work. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm humbled by her support, but I'm also uh, encouraged by her support as well. And one last thing that I, if I don't say this, I'll get in such trouble. I i could not do this. I mean, I could not be engaged in doing this work were it not for the absolute unconditional support of my wife, Sharon, and the fact that she has always seen things in me, what potential for things that I can make happen uh, beyond that which I am able to see myself, and she has been absolutely unconditional in her support of my pursuit uh, of this discipline, clinical bioethics, with the intention of making a difference in the veterinary profession for a good way to help the patients and the, I mean, to help our patients and and the people who love them.
1: Well, I remember when I first got involved in the veterinary community, one of my first favorite books was Bernie Rollins' book about veterinary medical ethics. I loved that thing and then got to talk to him and there was this long lull where people weren't talking about ethics. And then you, because I knew you because of the because of the work we'd done uh, at, at, on magazines and websites, you said you were getting into this. And I was so excited that when you shared your paper with me, I was super excited to read it from beginning to end and translate some of that into something for the folks in the profession. I loved it. So um, I really appreciate you sharing all this. Your journey has been really exciting and I'm always very both intellectually and kind of emotionally curious in all this stuff. So I appreciate your sharing.
0: It's really my pleasure, and um, you've given me a a great opportunity and a good platform, and I am honored to participate in your
1: podcast. This is uh, Dr. Robin Downing, and she gets me really excited about clinical bioethics.